VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Having this criminal, crime family, malignant narcissist in the most powerful job in the world, that is a pretty big fulcrum point for humanity. And so you have one shot. And so investing heavily in reducing the odds of that, that was the game. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We are back after a very restful two weeks off. I, uh, like surely most of you, did nothing. We had a super low-key Christmas. It was just the four of us. Uh, it was a little weird, um, but also quite nice. And then, you know, this week happened, which has just been incredible and really uh, unsettling with the whole storming of the Capitol building at the behest of a sitting U.S. president thing. I mean, it's just crazy. But I have the perfect guest this week to help process how we got here, how and why Trump lost, and kind of what happens next. And now you may be thinking, uh, this is a tech podcast, what are you talking about? Um, But that is exactly the point, because this week we have on the program Dimitri Melhorn, who for the past four years has helmed something called Investing in Us, which I erroneously thought was called Investing in U.S., but I digress. But Investing in Us is actually the vehicle through which hundreds of millions of dollars, mostly from one man, Reed Hoffman, the billionaire investor behind LinkedIn, Facebook, and loads of other companies out here, was funneled all in an effort to unseat Donald Trump. So there's a huge amount of money, tech money, mostly from Hoffman, and this was all put into a whole different load of initiatives, all with this one task in mind, and that was backing in individual candidates and races, as well as investing in dozens of political technology startups like Avalanche Insights, who we've had on this program. Investing in us also funded Higher Ground Labs, the incubator that invested in lots of these startups. We also had them on the program. And a lot of these companies are what the Democratic Party and the Biden campaign came to rely on heavily in this election. So Hoffman was the source of the money. Melhorn was his partner, really directing that flow of cash into all these different streams. And so he has just a very, very interesting position in this whole ecosystem. And Melhorn and I spoke early last week, so before the Georgia runoffs, before the unbelievable events of this week, just to give you that context. But if anything, what has happened since really underscores 
really much of what he says and the ground that we that we do cover. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. For me, it's just a really interesting look at how all the gears that have been grinding into motion really since 2016 that have brought us to this point where, you know, Trump is on his way out after one term. Um, there's a whole revamped technological infrastructure for the Democratic Party. There's this increasingly strong hand of big tech and politics, often behind the scenes. And then, you know, we have this population in many ways that is more divided than ever, largely due to social media. So there's a lot there, but I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. So without further ado, I will hand over to Dimitri Melhorn, head of investing in us. Enjoy. I was just wondering if we could kind of set the scene a bit and go back to 2016 and talk about the kind of the genesis of investing in the U.S., how you got involved, how this all came together. Yeah. So when Donald Trump first announced his run for the presidency, on the I escalator. was... What's that? Oh, when he went down the... Down the escalator. On the... <laughs> down the escalator and talked about 18 to 21% unemployment that the data was hiding, uh, but he knew, uh, as right. well as some other lines that were... Uh, even more famous than that. I do remember that that moment I was watching The Daily Show mm. and Jon Stewart, I mean, he was just like, oh, thank you. This is great. You're going to give us so much content. Mm -hmm. And it just all seems such a ridiculous, it all just seems so outlandish and so like not a snowball's chance in hell. It's yeah. just amazing at where we ended up. But um, it was just, I rem I specifically remember watching him come down the escalator and watching The Daily Show and everybody laughing at him and then... And then, well, what happened, happened. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of reasons why I was, I think, primed to be more scared of Trump than most. One is the nature of the work I was doing at the time. I was an angel investor in early stage companies. And really, if you're trying to make bets on potentially transformative companies, you're really looking out 10 years uh, as to you know edge possibilities. And then also just my personal background, uh, my mom's a Jew and my dad was a non-Jewish war refugee from Germany and they met in California. And so, you know, as I grew mm. up realizing that, you know, basically two generations earlier, one side of my family was genocidally slaughtering the other in the, uh, in the old world Holocaust, you know, started to dig in a lot as a poli-sci undergrad and a, a policy graduate degree and then a law degree, uh, really digging in into what that looked like and what someone like Trump would be. And, mm. um, you know, he was predicted. He is. It's kind of that saying, like, just believe what people, what a person is telling you or what they're showing you. Don't expect this to get better. And I will admit, I expected it to be like, not that bad. Yeah. That he would not follow through on all the stuff he was saying. Well, so I was wrong about one really big thing in the Trump era, which is I thought he would be bad for the markets, the public markets, because mm. I saw how the markets reacted to Brexit. And I thought that and I saw that the Economist Intelligence Unit rated a Trump election as a big risk factor for the world. And I talked to some of my friends in banking. And for the very first time in my life, I made a big personal investment in the public markets and that I shorted them prior to the election because I thought that Trump was going to win. Mm. And then I would use the gains to fight him. And then, you know, after the election, insult and injury. So, but in terms of him saying who he was, yeah. Neil Postman, do you know Neil Postman from Amusing Ourselves to Death? No. 
he's passed, but he wrote a book in 1985 that basically updates the Hannah Arendt, George Orwell library with mm. more of a, you know, the way that it will happen in this country will be more about amusement. And you saw a little bit of that. Uh, what is it? Sinclair mm. Lewis, Buzz Windrip was uh, more of a charlatan, more of a Joe McCarthy type. Yeah. And so, you know, the unique combination of things that Donald Trump is and was a reality television star, you know, there's versions of that overseas when um, actors of various sorts enter the world of politics. So, yeah, so Trump's coming down the escalator was, uh, I thought, very worrisome. And then mm. as it became more and more plausible that he was actually going to win the election, I got really alarmed. And uh, when he did win the election, I basically couldn't do anything else other than try to fight him. Like, I just didn't have mind space. I basically spent right. my whole life pledging that if something like that happened for the sake of my children uh, and, you know, humanity's next generations, like I would have to, my job as a human being was to, was to try to fight that. When you say something like that, I mean, what like, do you the, mean? like a, like a Hitler, Trump. And that's how, that's how you, given your family history and the, the going down the rabbit holes and understanding exactly what, how that transpired you saw something similar here. Yeah, to me, it seemed very clear that Trump was an uh, existential threat to the Enlightenment order. Right. You know, a lot of, a lot of Silicon Valley, you know this because you're embedded there, a lot of Silicon Valley is about uh, sci-fi and mm -hmm. fantasy and how does human existence and human technology play with that. And so stories of characters like Trump, they exist in sci-fi, they exist in fantasy. You know, there's um, a great book called um, A Deepness in the Sky, which is, you know, about uh, this interstellar trading federation that goes into deep sleep, travels to an inhabited planet and trades for things and then goes into mm -hmm. deep sleep and travels away. And they keep hitting the same planet because they're either at the peak of their civilization, in which case they have good stuff to trade, or they've collapsed. Because military, so you know all these Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos types that are like, oh yeah, you know, uh, transcendent humanism is going to take us to greatness. <laughs> the vast majority of human existence has been brutal. What uh, Carl Sagan yeah. called the demon haunted world—that's the uh, that is the default operating system, and the Enlightenment era has been an exception and an exception worth fighting for because it's made things way better, but not at all secure. So. Uh, someone like a Trump who's, uh, you know, willing to do the things that he was willing to do, you know, the Muslim ban, the, um, you know, one of the, some of the very early signs were, you know, the wholesale assault on the very idea of truth. Um, yeah. You know, the fact that he took out a front page, like a full page, not a front page, a full page ad calling for the execution of the Central Park Five. Did you know this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and never, yeah. ever retracted it, even when they were proven innocent. He early on, back in the Sean Spicer days, tried to publicize a list of crimes that were committed by immigrants of color. This is not a subtle reference. No. This is very much the exact playbook of brutal totalitarianisms. So he gets elected, election night. You are an angel investor at that point, living in D.C. or New York? or Living in D.C. Yeah, I was an angel investor in early stage uh, data companies, especially health data companies. I'd gotten lucky and so managed to 
pay the bills a little bit and have a little bit of cash left over to waste on a foolish bet in the public sector markets. Uh, and <laughs> oh, right. So you lost you lost your you lost your ass on that bet, sadly. Yeah. yeah. Was this a a kind of slightly painful hit or like ooh slightly painful. that didn't right slightly okay. painful. But still, like, okay, I can't do anything other than fight this guy. And I had a bunch of friends connect with me about like, how about this? And how about that? And I was like, that's yeah. not, that's not direct enough, like fixing the job market or fixing the political system. It's like, no, 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 you don't, those are, those are appropriate things to do in 1980 or, or the year 2000. Right. Those are not appropriate things to do when we've just elected someone like Trump. So eventually I was reconnected with a guy that uh, I overlapped with at Stanford. He was a senior when I was a freshman, Reed Hoffman. And we had reconnected a little bit around this group called Hope Street Group, which was a, um, I'd co-founded it in Los Angeles on Hope Street in LA with a colleague of mine at McKinsey and Company. Reed had been involved a little bit. So Reed and I had sort of engaged a little bit. We reconnected in February of 2017 and absolutely saw eye to eye about the nature of the threat. So this is three three months after the election, Correct. basically. And you guys what, had a dinner or something? I mean, eventually we did, but like the first thing we did was we had a phone call. Right. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty instant alignment. I mean, we started working together pretty much immediately in February. And we called it investing in us just as a label. We, it's never been incorporated, but just as a kind of a label for the idea of how do you bring best practices in entrepreneurialism and venture capital and the ideas from that world into the world of politics with an eye towards uh, bolstering American democracy against fascism. What was the problem that you were seeking to solve beyond Trump as the person who was in office? But if we, it's taking a step back and kind of how he won what were the Democrats doing wrong? Or what was like the kind of the, the system that you were like, ooh, this isn't working. We need to do X, Y, and Z to, you know, get basically level the playing field or, or, you know, tilt it in your direction. Yeah. So politics was clearly broken. And you're right to say, what were the Democrats doing wrong? I mean, both parties failed. When, 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 when someone like Trump gets elected, that is a, that is a system-wide failure. Both parties failed right. to stop it. And systems fail for all sorts of reasons, but also because of individual decisions. But there's also structural problems. So we looked at the overall landscape of the United States and why might it survive fascism better than other liberal democracies uh, which had gone under? Like, mm. you know, why were we better positioned than maybe the Weimar Republic or Turkey? under Erdogan or Venezuela under Chavez, you know, what were the strengths and weaknesses and differences? And, you know, one of the big strengths obviously was our court system and tried to think about, okay, are there ways that we can invest resources to bolster our court system? Uh, and that ended up being the biggest area of investment for us was legal. The next thing we looked at is politics. And we were in a situation, it was less clear at the outset. At the outset, I thought there would be more resistance within the Republican Party. But certainly by the end, it was very clear that at the federal level, we had a racial, nationalist, misogynist, fascistic party, and we had a multi-ethnic rule of law party. And mm. so getting the multi-ethnic rule of law party to win as much as possible, as often as possible, as decisively as possible, was a, a huge priority. 
And when you think about the structure of how politics works, it's, uh, you know, if you think about the Michael Porter's five forces, uh, and actually there's a recent book about this by Michael Porter and Catherine Gale called The Politics Industry, but it is an industry that is not a fast moving industry. And typically over time, it takes the party that just lost the White House more than four years to innovate sufficiently at, at sufficient scale to win it back. And so one of, part of our mandate was how do you shorten that cycle? Uh, how do you invest, you know, take the principles of blitz scaling and masters of scale and that kind of venture capitalism and entrepreneurialism, which both Reed and I share, share all those views. How do we take those principles and shorten the innovation cycle so that Democrats can win in less than four years rather than more? Right. Basically make Trump a one-term president. Yeah. And so investing in us before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of what you guys do, just like high level Starting in early 2017 to now, how much money did you guys invest in how many companies? Like, what, what did you kind of do, like the headline figures? Yeah. And then we can kind of get into what, how that breaks down. So most of the money comes from Reed uh, and his personal wealth. And he has not been public about the amount that he has moved. So I can only be sort of broad brushstrokes. When you include the money that Reed has contributed and also money that we have raised from elsewhere, which is a substantial amount, it is uh, plural hundreds of millions that were deployed. Wow. And how does that compare to, because everybody talks about the Koch brothers on the other side and how they were this machine that helped really, like the Republicans, especially when you talk about what they did with data and social media and micro-targeting and all of these things. How does that compare to what they did four years before or many years before? So the Koch brothers are uh, kind of a tragic case study in a bunch of different ways. At a very high level, the Koch brothers, they're just richer. You know, they're worth $100 billion. <laughs> and like there's a difference between, you know, $100 billion and, and you know, single five. digit billions or yeah. whatever, right? So that matters. Also, the Koch brothers had a large network and a long-term strategy. Mm. The Koch brothers, you know, I don't know if you've ever read like Sons of Wichita or any of that stuff, but they were very hardcore libertarians, very much mm. opposed to the Republican Party. And then they got really concerned when Barack Obama got elected. They got concerned as libertarians that Obama would usher in a big government state. They were especially concerned about climate change and they were concerned about healthcare. And I genuinely believe that their principles are sound. They are not um, sound, uh, sincerely held. You know, they, they, they believe in, you know, they invest in things like prison reform because they believe in libertarianism. However, one of the things that they did is they poured massive resources into uh, fighting the case around climate change. Uh, i.e. it's not not us not not, not real not yeah. us not man-made yeah, yeah. i mean their their industry you know their their industry focus coal, right yeah uh you yeah. know extractive industries yeah uh, so they funded all these groups like the heartland institute and so forth and look a robust debate about a complicated scientific subject is a worthwhile thing to have happen the problem is is that they took a sledge that that overall thing in addition to whatever you think about like the importance of climate change which most of us think is actually important and needs to be addressed. But also they took a sledgehammer to social epistemology and how the Western world thinks about truth and yeah. created this narrative ecosystem where like, 
the 97% consensus expertise uh, that you know, man-made climate change was a real problem and at least worth starting to address because it could get very bad. Yeah. Uh, and they sort of elevated a governing narrative, not just a fringe narrative, but a governing narrative that was dominant in the halls of Congress, that that was a hoax. It wasn't true. Uh, and then the other thing that the Koch brothers did is they they poured huge resources into the Tea Party movement because they believed it was libertarian. But polls of them showed it, they weren't libertarian. Like mm. the, the percentage of Tea Partiers that were genuinely libertarian and concerned about the deficit, like. It was small. You can see how they reacted when Trump blew holes in the deficit. Like that wasn't what they yeah. were about. And so by funding this, this nativist, resentful activist movement dominated by white men at the time of the first ever black president and also funding this anti-climate stuff, they you know, took a double sledgehammer to you know, the governing norms. I think they now realize that that was a mistake. I mean, Trump took that over. But that's what they did over, uh, and not just their own money, but also as the core of a network. So I would guess that they spent massively more than what Investing in Us has been able to spend. I would guess that it was in the billions, plural, over time. And they created a whole kind of data, like big data operation, which I'd love to get your sense of how important that was. I mean, it sounds like it's important, but I don't know if it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Uh, so the Republican ecosystem, people talk about it on the Democratic side in ways that I view as uh, ignorant of what actually happened. Mm. Uh, they did not like invest and build something and then everybody saluted. That, that's not the way they happened. They built up a data set that was hostile to the other major groups on the Republican side, hostile to the RNC and hostile to Karl Rove and American Crossroads. And there was a fight over data. You know, sometimes they collaborated, sometimes they didn't. And the resolution of that fight was they ultimately built a hub and spoke model. Uh, I think they call it I360 now, where every conservative group exchanges data, yeah. at, at least in theory, like multiple times per day in an arm's length exchange where I will give data and in exchange I will get data. The data that I get will be the compensation. As a result, like some 501c3 tax deductible contribution on the conservative side, like the Heritage Foundation can find out something and it pretty soon will get in the hands of you know the Trump campaign and vice right. versa. Right. So, and that does matter. And it, it's, you know, it is part of why and how the Trump campaign was able to micro-target in both 2016 and 2020 to engage in um, extraordinary turnout measures with their audiences mm. and also to you know, micro-target and, and get some late persuaders. And so 2017, you see what's happened. Oh my God, this is horrendous. You meet with Reed. He's obviously very wealthy and very, very motivated. I remember covering um, when he started that thing, uh, what was it called? WTF, Win the Future. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which w seemed like a kind of an initial pass that didn't quite work. It was a bit squishy. It wasn't quite clear what, what it was. But this movement to be like, okay, let's let's create, let's kind of push back here in a pretty aggressive way. So how do you, I mean, are you working for him? Because you, you say investing in us isn't even like a organization, like legally. How does this work? So... Um... <laughs> Effectively, the model is that Reed and I are partners and give advice to people who want to move money or interested right. in moving resources to protect American democracy. So that's Reed's personal friends, some of my personal friends who are high net worth individuals, uh, but also Reed himself and his money. 
And right. so the first wave of investment was a few million dollars from a variety of sources into the elections that were taking place in 2017, uh, and in particular, the Virginia House of Delegates races. That was kind of like a pilot program, I guess. It in, was. In, in, it's exactly in startup, what it was. In startup speak. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, some of the people, for example, that you have had on your show, uh, like uh, Show McData and... Mm. Um, I think you, you spoke with the folks at Avalanche and Rene yeah. Duresta. Like a lot of those people were using the Virginia 2017 election as a way to figure out what politics looked like in the Trump era. And invest accordingly. Yes. And uh, hypothesis driven. So the idea was if you play heavy in Virginia 2017, you can do a lot of things in terms of educating people, I think educating the whole system, ecosystem about what might work and what didn't. And, you know, we, it was actually quite controversial in Virginia. Uh, we clashed, we, we worked with a, a group of local Virginia investors who called themselves the Blue Angels. They invested a lot of money. We put in a lot of money. We tried a bunch of different things. We initially tried to support the state Democrats, but uh, there were some pretty sharp breaks in terms of strategy, and they mm. were often quite frustrated with us. They felt that we were raising money that should have gone to them for them to allocate, and right. that we were encouraging tactics that they did not believe in because they were not traditional. Like? Like we wanted the candidates to spend less money on mail. We wanted them to spend uh, you know, the glossy mailers. We were pretty sure, yeah. based on the research that we'd been given access to that that just didn't work past the first couple of mailers. And you had people who were spending, I mean, over $100,000 in a state legislative race on like 20 plus flights of mail. And we were saying, don't do that. Literally, we will pay you, <laughs> you know, to not do that. We will, you know, if you feel like you are being pressured to raise money and dial for dollars, we will get you campaign finance contributions if you'll just take the time and speak with your constituents instead of like raising money for mail. But practically, what does that mean? If you're not doing mailers, you're doing what? Uh, you're going door to door. You're uh, engaging right. on social media. You're right. uh, on Facebook Live recording videos of yourself. Those are the big ones. Right. You know, how was it, how were you received? Because I, I mean, I know that you guys in many ways often were in conflict with kind of the democratic apparatus because you were coming in and kind of, my words, throwing money around and doing things that perhaps were different than had been done in the past. And I don't know if there was also a, oh, look at the Silicon Valley money coming in and trying to tell us how to do, you know thinking they didn't know better than us and, you know, get out of here. What was that dynamic like? Yeah, all of that is true. And there were a number of specific pain points. For example, a lot of these technologies that we had invested in through higher ground labs or otherwise, in order for them to work on behalf of the candidates, they needed to have access to the candidate's voter file. And so we went back and forth with the Democratic Party and, you know, didn't, by we, I mean, when Virginia, the Win Virginia group was finding out that like they weren't getting the voter file access fast enough. And so we would call right. people that we knew in the Democratic Party and they said, oh yeah, they just came up with a, a bunch of reasons to slow roll us. You know, oh uh, yeah, you have to submit, in order to get access, it's not enough for the candidate to send a letter. They have to submit a ticket within NGP Van, the software platform. 
Right. Okay. So we get this candidate who's learnt, trying to learn how to run for office and trying to, you know, meet their constituents and raise money and say, sorry, you got to learn how to work in van and submit a ticket. And you get them to do it. Hmm. And then there's still no voter file access. And you ask the insiders, why is right. there no? Oh, you have to submit a separate ticket for each of the applications you want to have access to the voter file. You do that. And then still the delay. And then you ask. And they're like, oh, yeah, we need to have lawyers review. And it, it made it harder for the, the edge candidates to win. Were you surprised by the, like, just listening to you describe that? It sounds like, you know, we have startup folks on here all the time. And it does, sounds like a very typical startup dynamic, old fusty industry, whether it's like taxi drivers, whatever it may be, you know, like, no, we don't take credit cards, only cash, our car stinks, but this is the way we do it. Were you surprised that this this was how it was in politics? Or is this just, in terms of, you know, looking at your background, is this just like, Oh, yeah, this is just another industry that needs to be disrupted. And it just happens to have been disrupted in ways on the other side that hasn't been that hasn't happened yet on the Democratic side. And that's what we're doing. It's a great question. I was surprised just because I felt that Democrats should understand how big of a threat Trump represented, but they were just as complacent. Mm. Uh, that was the surprising thing is they were just as complacent as the Republican enablers. They're like, oh, yeah, sure, I want to win. But like. I always want to win. And, you know, I do need to, you know, I have mouths to feed. I have mortgage to pay, you know, there's my business model. So yeah, it, that part of it was frustrating, but it shouldn't have been. I mean, you're right to ask the question. The other thing about it, just to be clear, is that the Democratic establishment also was particularly upset at the scope of races in which we were engaged. They wanted us to focus on, you know, defend a few seats, pick up a few yeah. seats, maybe stretch for a few more. So they really, really wanted to defend three, pick up four, and maybe pick up as many as seven. So they wanted to play in 10 races. And uh, we wanted to play in every race, all 100. Yeah, that just seems, uh, why would you do that? Why would you just go race by race as opposed to creating an infrastructure that is kind of not necessarily plug and play, but just that is in place that the whole party can use in one way or another. Well, their argument superficially, the one that they said out loud was actually plausible. And their argument was that if you spread resources too thinly, you basically lose by a little everywhere, mm. which they had experienced in Virginia. And they also made the argument that in really conservative legislative districts, if there wasn't a lot of energy then there wouldn't be yeah. a lot of turnout. And if you ran hard in those redder districts, you might actually hurt the top of the ticket, the governor. And so that was a real thing. And so we actually set up a post-mortem review for five days after the election to see if that had happened. And we engaged the Analyst Institute, which is the statistical group, to see if that happened. And it turns out it didn't. Running everywhere does help. Making sure that you have candidates everywhere helps. Uh, but that was something we didn't know. And that was one yeah. of the things we had to learn. And so from what I have read, I think someone referred to you guys as more of knife fighters, quote unquote. <laughs> was there a point at which you're like, okay, we're, we're spending real money here. We're getting results. Why don't we all kind of, you know, we're all on the same team here. Let's all pull in the same direction. Was there a kind of a detente that was reached or a kind of a something better, like an actual partnership to kind of, because obviously... And we can get to twenty. I want to get to twenty twenty and kind of the results because it wasn't, you know, it's still not totally clear, the scope of victory or lack thereof. But um, 
was there a meeting of minds, so to speak, ultimately? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about it is it is fair to say that there was some friction created by our approach. And there's also criticisms of me personally for not being a good enough diplomat, which is fair. You know, I'm, I'm definitely, um, I've made mistakes. But the, um, the other thing about it, though, is that, like, the conflict was always overstated, like way mm. overstated. Right. You know, we have a, you know, one of the very first things we did in June or July of 2017 is have a big convening of big labor with mm. big tech. Because these were communities that didn't really work together. Oh, interesting. You know, and my prior background, when I had my prior before I'd been an investor, I'd done a series of things, but a few jobs earlier, I'd been in, in school reform. And so I was fighting with the teachers' unions. And as soon as Trump got elected, I went to Randy Weingarten's office and I said, We'll fight with each other when the fascists are gone. But we're on the same yeah. side now. And yeah. so big labor and big tech worked together. We we started a collaboration that was extremely strong. That post hoc review that I mentioned after 2017, that was actually mm -hmm. hosted at the FLCIO offices headquarters right. uh, in downtown DC. And hundreds of people came. And I mentioned in, in Virginia, the, the real party leadership, you know, the US senators, the governor, they were super engaged. And Tom Perez, uh, Barack Obama, like they, they like Reed a lot. So there's yeah. always been a, a very high level of collaboration. And, you know, we had very open exchanges with the Biden campaign along the way. And frankly, we, we embedded a lot of our work in the House Majority Pack in the run up to 2018, you know, mm. at, at substantial scale, because we thought one of the critical things to do is to make sure that Democrats got at least one chamber of Congress. And all of that embedding and all of that, you know, there was a lot of synergy we would see something, we would think it was great. And we would then invest with a larger group like Senate Majority PAC and with our investment in Senate Majority PAC say, make sure you're seriously considering these innovation approaches. You know, So there were some large consulting firms and some individual apparatus functionaries that were very offended by our approach and very angry, but you know, that's mm. the exception. And in terms of us being knife fighters or whatever, like, you know, we were very clear, like, guys, we're on the same team. Let's focus on Trump. And when that didn't happen, it's not like we were going to be like, okay, fine, do whatever you want. It's like, okay, you go do what you're going to do. Right. But that's not what we're about. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so it was a four-year mission. Yeah. So January 20th is fast approaching. And, well, as far as we know, I mean, he's going to leave or be dragged out. Who knows? Is it job done? Is it like, okay, we'll all go back to our lives now? Yeah. I mean, the original game plan was to go down to zero on January 20th at 12.01 p.m. When you say go down to zero, what do you mean? Go off to our lives. Go back to the you know, Cincinnati okay. Ranch or whatever. Other pursuits. And that was the game plan if Trump won. That was the game plan if Trump won? Mm-hmm. Because, like, once really? he's won, like, the lever's gone, you know? What do you mean? The lever was a reelect of this guy around this movement. So you could really energize people because, like, this is our opportunity. Whereas if he's in again... It wasn't even energizing. It was, it, was, it was us. We believe. Like, you know, if you don't have George Washington, if you stead, instead have somebody who wants to keep power till he dies, the trajectory of America is different mm. for the worse. Uh, yes. If Abraham Lincoln doesn't get assassinated, the trajectory of America is different for the better. You know, having this criminal crime family, malignant narcissist in the most powerful job in the world, that is a pretty big fulcrum point for humanity. <laughs> and so you have one shot. And so investing heavily in reducing the odds of that, that was the game. Right. And, you know, our hope was that there'd be this landslide repudiation. You know, and mm. there was a chance of that could happen uh, where, you know, you get 55 seats in the Senate. Yeah. And that's great, too. And then we also go to zero. But yeah. either way, the lever point is gone. And believe me, we, you know, we had invested a lot in, in what we called the 78-day portfolio, which was investments to make sure that between November 3rd and January 20th, there's a oh. peaceful transfer of power or that the, the, the person who wins the election actually takes office. How is that an investable theme? Uh, get lawyers ready, get journalists ready, mm. get multi-local organizers ready, get uh, centrist Republicans in major metro areas in the relevant states to get to know the uh, Black Lives Matter protesters in those states so that if there's... Uh, street demonstrations and uh, the Republicans have the same sort of boogaloo boy agent provocateurs that they had in Minneapolis. How do we make sure that, okay, let's not do a march, let's do a sit-in or a lie-in. You know, there's a lot of pre-work to do taking you know, examples from overseas of where, you know, an auto coup, uh, 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 you know, an existing leader tries to keep power illegitimately. How do you fight that? There's a lot of work to be done. But most of that work basically became unnecessary once Michigan voted to certify its electors. And by the way, like the fact that Fox called Arizona early. That was very surprising. It was, but it also was very important. For sure. To For sure. Uh, That eliminated a substantial part of the Trumpists' ability to engage in an auto coup. Yeah, the, the breach between Trump and Fox News has been riveting to watch, actually. Yes. 
just given the kind of tenor of things over the last four years and then on election night they go out ahead of everybody and be like no he lost that state that yeah. crucial battleground state he lost it it was like whoa yeah yeah because with arizona plus nebraska too which was also yeah. called pretty early because it was a big one you'd flipped 12 and you needed to flip a total of 38 Mm. And so once you'd flip 12, getting the next 26 is actually not that hard. You know, you get 16 from Michigan, then you only need 10 more. You can get that from 20 in Pennsylvania, from 16 in Georgia, right. from 10 in Wisconsin, lots of places to get it. And yeah. uh, so it made the narrative like you saw how important this was. On, a, I mean, one of the things that's a little bit different between us and some of the other metrics driven political investors in Silicon Valley is that we really do believe that there's a thing called the, the narrative that the earned media, viral media kind of clusters around and, and shaping that is important. Very difficult to measure, but it's super important. And Trump's 78-day narrative was stop the count, we won. That was the yeah. whole Red Mirage thing that Bloomberg's yeah. Hawkfish thing did. And it's really hard to pull that. They realized in some places they were saying, they were chanting, stop the count. <laughs> and in other, other words, places, uh, places are like, keep counting now, yeah, recount. Exactly. <laughs> it just destroy, it destroys their ability to do that. Right. And so you were going to go to zero, as you say, in two and a half weeks. Yeah. But yeah. then there's this thing where actually we didn't have a repudiation of Trumpism. We're kind of still in the muddled middle. And even more clearly than before, I mean, Trump's behavior... It is surprising and it isn't. Like each individual instance is kind of surprising in its own way, but the aggregate pattern is not that surprising if you look yeah. at his life prior to the presidency. The deep surprise has been the absolute cowardice of the federal Republican Party. And even mm. as bad as it, it kept getting bad and it kept getting worse and it kept thinking like, wow, this is really bad. And then the next thing happens. And when 126 members of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives signed on to that absolutely absurd lawsuit from the Attorney General of Texas. Of Texas, yeah. Seeking to overturn the election in Pennsylvania and, and Georgia and elsewhere. And then 17 other Republican state attorneys general signed on to that. And you had open adherents of QAnon will be in the next Congress as Republicans. And you know what QAnon is, right? And what they yep. say and believe like yep. that's the blood libel. That's Nazis and that's straight up. And it's, you know, that is now more popular in the Republican caucus of that will be more popular in the next uh, chamber's Republican caucus than Mitt Romney, the 2012 nominee. What do you mean? It will be more popular. You can be in the Republican caucus talking about QAnon and you will get support. You will have individual and members that are part of the Q pedophile group. rings and pizza yeah, parlors, Pizzagate and, stuff. and Satanists and the whole thing. Mike Flynn, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all these people, and Kevin McCarthy saying, "Well, you know, see how they govern." If you, if you on the flip side were to be equally enthusiastic about Mitt Romney and his vision of the Republican Party, you would get booed. Right. So we're now in a situation where the sort of Manichaean struggle between good and evil is super clear. The federal Republican Party is evil. Now, this doesn't mean that the Democratic federal Democratic Party is good. It's just mm. not evil, right? And if you think about like the great 
scientific experiments about human nature, like the uh, the Milgram experiments. Are you familiar? Yeah. Uh, the thing about the Milgram experiments, first of all, of course, it's depressing how many of your fellow citizens would just be willing to kill you on the authority of some stranger. That is depressing. But the thing that's interesting is it's not 100%, right? It's like a majority, but it's like 30% yeah. absolutely like, no way, I'm not hurting that guy just because of you. And so there's yeah. this thing where like, actually, there's a minority of society that is going to stand up for justice. And that right. mi that minority can be pivotal and critical at times. You know, and um, all of those people have now left the Federal Republican Party. John McCain, Jeff Flake, mm. Charlie Dent, they've all retired or lost primaries right. or died. It's pretty much Mitt Romney, maybe Adam Kinzinger, maybe, but like right. one or two or three people. And you've got like David Perdue, who had once been seen as a reasonable centrist, calling on the Georgia Secretary of State. Brad Raffensperger to resign because he administered a election that Biden won. So we're in a situation where the Republican Party at the federal level is clearly transforming into something very evil and very dark. It's already transformed into that to some degree, and it's getting worse. And because of the way that elections are run in this country, they could take power, complete power in 2022. And then you could have like Tucker Carlson and Ivanka Trump as a ticket in 2024. Oh, God. And even though the vast majority of the productive economy and a substantial majority of American citizens don't want that, doesn't mm. matter. They can still take power and that would be very bad. So we're sort of taking a step back and trying to figure out like, okay, we no longer have the lever of reducing the likelihood of a Trump reelect, but are there other levers that might lend themselves to our approach in a way that could be helpful. So that's what we're thinking through right now. So I have two questions. One is, are there like one or two or three things or companies that you invested in that were like really made a difference from where you sit in terms of just the blocking and tackling of elections and electioneering? I'll just leave that question first and then get to the other one. So yes, absolutely. Uh, one of them was a group called Protect Democracy, which is a bipartisan mm -hmm. group of lawyers. Um, like, for example, they were the ones who organized large numbers of bipartisan retired prosecutors signing a letter that the information contained in the Mueller report would have been sufficient to convict somebody if that person wasn't president. Or like Department of Justice folks signing letters uh, opposing Bill Barr's change of heart on the uh, Michael Flynn sentencing and, and prosecution. So that kind of stuff, you know, one of the things that binds us together is these professional guilds having standards mm. of conduct and, you know, protect democracy became deeply embedded in those conversations with bipartisan thinkers. And they, they were part of the group that pulled together the transition integrity project which helped inform the 78-day investment portfolio. So definitely, uh, you know, Protect Democracy and their founder, Ian Basson, that was an amazing group. You know, you have to give it up to Higher Ground Labs on the for-profit side. You know, we moved substantial resources through them. You know, they were chaired, their advisory board was chaired by Ron Klain, who's Biden's incoming chief of staff. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. And their tools were used by the Biden campaign. And uh, they built a lot of things that scaled on his podcast with you, Shamik mentioned Outvote, which was a good one. Mm 
Mm. So there were a bunch of places where really, really smart founders like Mobilize America, which navigates volunteers. I mean, Mobilize America by itself is, is another one. Um, it was within the Higher Ground Labs portfolio. So their successes are attributable in part to the great mentorship of Shomik and Betsy and so forth. Um, just a little footnote here, since you cover Silicon Valley for the Times, Reed in general, and me also, and, and quite a few others, don't actually like the incubator accelerator model usually because you want to push as much work as possible into a diverse network. Hmm. In politics, you can't do that because you're operating against a calendar. So you need more acceleration. Right. Yeah. So Betsy and Shomik and their colleagues, uh, Andrew McLaughlin and others provided that. But then as an example of one of the, one of the standout companies, Mobilize America, it's freaking yeah. awesome. And they created this backend marketplace that allowed volunteers from all over the country, including blue districts, to sign up for shifts, to do phone banking or letter writing or whatever, and to right. do so in a way that you know, democratic politics had been catastrophically bad at managing volunteer engagement for decades. And Mobilize America became an architecture that groups like Swing Left and Indivisible and other groups, uh, many of which we funded, were able to engage. And Alfred and Allen, the two founders of Mobilize, made it a platform that it therefore became the tool for the party. Right. It's amazing. I could keep going. There are others as well, but those are some of them that were really home runs. And then more broadly on this, again, this, the kind of the business of politics and how it's evolving. And, you know, there's been so much ink spilled about social media and Facebook and the role it plays versus like traditional media, of course, TV. Going forward, where is the game? Is it online? You know, because TV is still su supremely powerful, it feels like. But it does feel like there's a lot more time and thought and effort going into how do we find the people online? You know, how do we get into their Facebook feed or their Instagram feed? How do we hone a message that shows up and they're like, ooh, yeah, no, that's this speaks to me, et cetera. Just the architecture of that lends itself to a completely different and obviously more granular electioneering. And I don't know if that is that is the future because you everybody knows how to do TV already. I fall into the camp that views the internet as transformationally important, but in a similar way that radio was mm. or television was or the printing press was like, you know, you go back to the pre-Civil War American collapse, you know, the way the printing, you know, the, the newspapers and pamphleteers inflamed that was pretty targeted and pretty devastating. Yes, there are all these new tools that and and I mean, the 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 mind of Mark Zuckerberg and his personal decision-making ended up mattering a lot, yeah. but, and ditto for Jack Dorsey, but so did the mind of, and decisions made by Rupert Murdoch. And one of the reasons why QAnon and some of the like aggressive Russian misinformation efforts were able to be successful is because they were built into a pre-existing fabric that included you know, the Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage talk radio, Sinclair mm -hmm. local TV, yeah. uh, Fox News, Breitbart, Infowars, like all of that stuff existed without social media micro-targeting. And so it is the aggregate impact of that narrative ecosystem that is so dangerous. One of the reasons why, like even in April when COVID was exploding, we sort of issued a call to arms to fellow donors to be like, the Orwellian misinformation ecosystem will beat this. You know, he will somehow find a way, and he did. 
You know, there, there are arguments to be made that COVID in some ways even helped him because he tapped into the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, uh, the macho part of his base sided with him and I'm not going to wear a mask and I just want right. openness and Biden's going to shut it down. Like that worked. That was you know, one of the reasons it was as close as it was. And one of the reasons Republicans did so well down ballot is that yet again, Trump got very marginal white male voters to turn out more. Yeah, as he tells everybody, he's got more votes than anybody in the history of ever. Yes, <laughs> and the biggest votes. The, they're definitely the biggest. What was the biggest mistake? Or were there one or two or three things where you're like, mm, we should have done that differently, or we shouldn't have invested in that company, or we should have thought about this more? Well, look, you know, the biggest set of mistakes were, you know, around the the Alabama election. And the mistakes were not, you know, the, the allegation is that we deliberately did a lot of really nasty things. That's just not true. We didn't deliberately do any of that stuff. And some of the stuff that was alleged to have happened, I still haven't confirmed whether it happened or not. This is the allegations of like a misinformation Botnets campaign. Against... and all this craziness. Right. But some of the stuff that happened, and, and I, I was very active there. Some of the money that went there, came from Reed. But, um, you know, investing in us, like our broader network, probably put two or three million into trying to get Doug Jones elected. That investment was actually made before anyone thought Roy Moore was going to be the candidate. So we thought it was not going to be a close election. Right. We thought it was going to be an election to learn about how things worked. And as a result of that orientation, it appears that some of the resources we raised went to things that, in retrospect, were not good to have done ethically. So that's probably the biggest mistake. And well, that gets to that kind of that central question, which I think you raised in one of the things you wrote after that, which is this idea of how do you win but not become what you oppose? Yeah, it's critical. When we first met, we kind of gamed this out. You know, that party thinks that we are Satan-worshipping child traffickers. And because of that, they will do anything to win. So we think that they are directly attacking the Enlightenment era and our prospects for, you know, civilization lasting for another century or so. So, that, you know, mm. and so the incentive for us will be like, OK, then we've got to grab guns and do whatever. Right. Yeah. And so you pretty quickly realize that um, that way uh, lies perdition. And there was actually a very robust debate in um, the Soviet, in, in the Bolshevik era between, you know, there was uh, the anarchists and there were the Trotskyites, and, but then there was Lenin. And what the Trotskyites and the anarchists said to Lenin was the structure that you use to run your vanguard, the way you try to attack the status quo will become your status quo. And that was, you know, beautifully captured by George Orwell in Animal Farm. So like, okay, we have to make sure there's certain rules. So the easy ones were, well, no, no mass hatred, no, uh, no scale disinformation. You know, the allegations of the big botnet that were made by some folks, like that would have been a clear violation of our initial rules. Like we were yep. very clear about that at the beginning. But then there's other like softer and more subtle things. Like if the American Petroleum Institute puts up a billboard under their wholly owned subsidiary Americans for clean energy, right? And it's clean <laughs> energy and it's like children playing with flowers. Yeah. 
And it yeah. says clean energy includes clean coal or whatever. Or, but don't even include clean coal. Like, because clean coal is like an objective lie. It doesn't exist. But like, say, yeah. they, say they're endorsing like nuclear power or whatever. I don't know. The packaging of who they are is deceptive. Can we do that? So like one of the things that was like a marginal thing was, do you set up a website saying, you know, Alabamans for dry Alabama, you know, to, to restart prohibition, which is actually apparently a real movement in Alabama. Do you set up that website pretending to be those people and then convey accurate information about yeah. does Roy Moore support prohibition? Like, where's that line? Now, the group that we invested in in Alabama crossed that line clearly in a mm. bad direction by saying, we at Dry Alabama endorse Roy Moore. Like, okay, that's, okay, okay now that's clearly a lie. And the, after the whole Alabama kerfuffle and all the crap about that, we sort of said, okay, how do we actually do this in the right way? And there's this really interesting, do you know the Center for Humane Technology? Yep. I've had Tristan on the podcast. Awesome. So they did a piece on the Democratic Surround, which is like mm -hmm. the Bauhaus design movement to, uh, you know, that famous sort of government-sponsored anti-fascist ad, which is like a radio ad of some McCarthyite curmudgeon yelling, and then two people kind of quietly talking about whether it's persuasive or not, and talking about right. how like America is who we are because we value our differences. So it's like, anti-fascist messaging. So that's kind of where we came up. So like right now, one of the, one of the ways that we're in the crossfire is like national review and a bunch of other folks attack us for funding courier news, which was the outfit started by yeah. Tara McGowan. And I'm like, have you listened to what courier news is about? Like, listen to their podcasts, listen to up North news. I mean, this is mainstream centrist, sometimes even center right reporting by an organization that explicitly and publicly discloses it's controlled by partisan Democrats. And Facebook doesn't even give them the privileges of being a news source. Meanwhile, Breitbart and the frickin' mm. Daily Caller Foundation under Tucker Carlson, who, through their network of relationships, are actually selling data to the Trump campaign through IC I360, right? Clear partisan political operatives and doing so in ways that are not transparent. They're not only are they get it like Breitbart is not only a trusted news site, but yeah. the Daily Caller Foundation is actually on their fact checking board. So they're like slapping falsehood labels on like Politico for straight down the middle reporting or like the Lincoln Project ads. So, um, you know, we feel in a situation like that, like, OK, we clearly like, yeah, the line was opaque. Be clear about that. But where we are now, we're pretty comfortable. I'll take the National Review criticisms about. Courier news because I would love to have that debate about how yeah. we should be doing this sort of thing. Well, it's interesting. Someone, uh, a friend of mine, listened to the the podcast we had a couple of months back with um, Avalanche Strategies. He's a Democrat and he hates Trump and all that stuff. But he was also there. You go. Oh, you got the hoodie on. But he was also like uncomfortable. He was like, uh, "How is this just not propaganda? You know, but propaganda that I like." But it gets to this question of you know, do you bring a knife to a gunfight? So it is a question of like, how hard do you fight? And I think that's a fair question and different people have different comfort levels and that's fine. But I don't actually think that's the central question. The central question is, is there truth? Hmm. Does truth exist? Is it totally <laughs> relative? Right. Is it totally relative? So like Breitbart's a trusted news site because 
Breitbart is trusted by people. One of my neighbors who was who voted for Trump, and he and I had this disagreement about it, as you might imagine. Hmm. And he's a you know professional guy, and you know he sort of says, "Look, you know, it's it's like we said in Russia when he was when he spent time in Russia. It's like whose truth do you believe? You know, whose truth?" And the the idea that truth is entirely subjective is one of the tools of an authoritarian. And Jonathan Rauch from Brookings wrote this excellent piece in National Affairs called The Constitution of Knowledge, mm-hmm. which is um, about like how we have a funnel where you know you don't get put in jail for saying the most crazy thing you might imagine. Yeah. But then there's a funnel where only some of that actually gets into the halls of the Senate. Right. And that system is broken. And so, like, if Mike is like, how do I know this isn't just propaganda that I like? It's like, because this is true. And that is false. Like there is actually no QAnon. There's no basement in Pizzagate. There was no election fraud. You know, the courts have a Daubert test that is based on a case where certain kinds of evidence isn't even allowed in front of a jury, right? Like you have peer reviewed articles, you know, uh, Reed and I, from the beginning of thinking about this narrative stuff, you know, we are people who read and believe in stuff like the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn and the nature of social epistemology and how do mm-hmm. we agree on the truth. And like, we believe there is a truth right? and there's a method. And so, you know, there are parts of the country where people are being exposed to objective falsehoods and Courier News is delivering them objective truth. It's not a close call. Right. According to you. According to the scientific method, (laughs) you know, the enlightenment era, you know, testing things Um, and determining if they're true or not, like all that hocus. Right. All that that hokum. Right. Exactly. So if you think that, right, if you think that the institutions of modern academia, expertise, the scientific method, the rule of law, if you think that collectively they should be an important arbiter of received wisdom, hmm. then you agree with us. If you don't, then you agree with Trump and Steve Bannon. Like yeah. QAnon is just as objectively true. Like Trump's constant defense of his deceits was that millions of people believed him. If that's your metric, then yeah. Yeah. It's circular. It's one yes. right, it's one way or yes. the other. So it's not like so you were asking the question of is social media critical to the future of politics? My answer to that question was, yeah, it's critical, but it's part of an ecosystem. Uh, but there's another answer to that question, which is social media is essential to the future of politics, not in a partisan way, but in an epistemology way. Are we going to have a shared conception of truth, of truth. Yeah. under the Enlightenment era, or are yeah. we going to collapse back into the sort of pre-enlightenment demon haunted world where superstition is just as good. Yeah. Well, I think that dynamic is the problem because I've right now, I don't think there is a shared truth. There is not a shared reality at which people can argue over how to best deal with that reality. It's more like, well, my reality is completely different from yours. Yeah. I think you'd like Jonathan Rauch's piece because he comes at it from a right of center perspective and he, you know, attacks cultural liberalism on college campuses as part of the problem. But the issue of a shared truth, like, there was never a shared truth that everybody agreed to. Conspiracy theories have existed forever. The issue is that the most outlandish and absurd and easily falsifiable lies are now being dramatically projected by every institution. The well of the Senate is laundering Russian propaganda. That's the break. It's the freedom of speech versus freedom of reach idea. Exactly. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you about was, so as you think about kind of, as we discussed earlier, like what next in terms of whether you guys keep going in this fight, I'm interested, you know, because in Washington and every capital around the world, it seems, at least in the West, uh, Silicon Valley is under siege, being, you know, slammed with lawsuits left, right, and center. The antitrust movement is real and gaining steam, and um, especially against Facebook and others. And just wondering, how does that dynamic play out when you're also trying to kind of you know, because Reed Hoffman, he was an early investor in Facebook. He obviously knows Zuckerberg super well. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of the other people who you're raising money from in this world have an interest in Washington dialing back rather mm. than, you know, pushing ahead, which is what they are doing. And just how do you, that's got to be a very delicate balance, but perhaps it's not. I don't know. It's always been easy for me and Reed because there was no ambiguity. Like if it was Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, we are all in for Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders is a crank. Like if you care mm -hmm. about the rule of law, you don't love Bernie Sanders as your president. He's just a thousand times better than Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. And Bernie Sanders would want to beat the hell out of yeah. Silicon Valley. The people in private equity and venture capital that we were raising money from in New York and, and Boston, we were all very clear. Like, if Elizabeth Warren's the nominee, we are all in for Liz Warren. Because we believe that like, if you're a rich person with a big company in Putin's Russia, Putin owns your stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's just letting you sit on it for He's a while. letting you use it, for sure. The network of, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 uh, super high net worth individuals that worked through or with investing in us pretty much all of them believe we were at that moment where we might be going down that road. And so the mm. question, like, you know, it was never a close question, but there's a more interesting, larger question, which is what does the world look like? You know, are, are there tech interests and, and what do those tech interests imply in terms of privacy and antitrust? And where we are is if there's a good antitrust answer, like one of the reasons why democracy exists today is because of actions by Teddy Roosevelt and the trust busters, you know? And so smart antitrust is a good thing. It's one of the areas where Elizabeth Warren is probably most right about improving the productive yeah. economy, but it's got to be smart. And like, for example, in the context of social media, obviously we're hopeful that, you know, with Trump out of office, the balance is such that Facebook, you know, Facebook was, had a difficult time when Trump was in office because any objective neutral algorithm that tried to reduce falsehoods or violence on their platform would disproportionately hurt one of the two major political parties. Yeah. That's one of the consequences of having a Trump in office. So we're hopeful that Facebook gets better. Put that aside though, uh, whether or not Facebook gets better, whatever it is, if Facebook is crippled, there is going to be a global social media platform. It will just be Chinese. Just the nature of the economies of scale are such there will be one global provider. And so I just think we need to be mindful as we do antitrust to recognize that there are some natural economies of scale, but you've got to make sure that they're constrained. You know, a super monopoly in one space isn't used to destroy competition in an adjacent space. Was Zuckerberg part of that network of 40 or 50 super high net worth individuals? He was not. Uh, however, you know, he ended up playing a huge role in private, you know, that $300 million that Priscilla and Mark donated to election administration. Yeah, without that, we would have been in, we would have been in it. It would have been really bad. That money, like, really? 
Oh, yeah. That money went to like election administration was going to be under enormous strain in the age of COVID mm. and recruiting poll workers and managing logistics and longer lines, just crazy, crazy, crazy. And, you know, $60 million went to the state of Pennsylvania, which needed it, but wouldn't have otherwise funded it because, frankly, the Republican leadership in Pennsylvania understood that the election administration problems would disproportionately help their guy. So, so Zuck was never a partisan contributor, but his private philanthropy made a huge difference. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't realized that at all. Oh, yeah. It definitely helped. I mean, more than helped, like... The but for on that was pretty, especially given how close it was and how aggressively the Trump team has been trying to throw chaos and, and doubt into the election outcome. It was critical to have resources to just run an election. Wow. I'm going to let you go, but I just had one last question. So when do you decide kind of, I mean, I guess there's no drop dead date by which you have to decide like what you do next or whether you guys just disband and go back to your lives or if Reed continues to kind of spray money around into this world because there's more more to be done. Yeah. So the spray money around is never going to happen. Uh, it might be like investments, you know, under mm. the sort of blitzscaling model. You know, there's three of us now. It's me, Reed, and this guy, Tamar Mokhtar, who runs our 501c3 operations, which are organized under the banner, All Americans Vote. And Tamara and Reed and I are all just talking this through and trying to figure out, like, all of us want to do other things, but if there's a lane to do good stuff here and make a difference, well, you know, we can put off our other plans for another year or two if there's something we could actually do. We're going to have to observe the Georgia results super carefully because, you know, just like Virginia 2017, this Georgia election is the first big election of the sort of post-Trump era. So we'll figure out over the next few months if we're going to uh, scatter or get back at it. Right. Any thought around funding a media organization? Given that, well, you know, Trump is supposedly looking hard at that. He's really pumping up Newsmax and OAN and these other, I don't know if he's going to launch his own. He clearly is not a huge fan of Fox News these days, but it does, that does feel like a battlefield that is potentially, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed in that battlefield, it feels like. Yeah. And we're willing to shed blood, but we're not necessarily eager to. That is a game for people who play at a bigger level. That's a game yeah. for Rupert and Mike Bloomberg and, you know, who's going to spend $4 billion to buy Sinclair or whatever, or like fund a new talk radio network or whatever, right? Buy, buy iHeart slash Clear Channel. I hope that they do. I think it would be great mm -hmm. if Mike Bloomberg bought those things and brought rationality to them. But that's not, that's a level above our pay grade. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Dimitri for taking the time to talk. I want to thank you for listening and to say welcome back 2021. Let's hope this year is better than last. I will be writing about a whole bunch of stuff in this weekend's paper. So do check that out. The workers are unionizing at Google and there's, there's just a lot of big tech stories happening in addition to this. So if you want to check those out, go to thetimes.co.uk. It'll all be there this Sunday. And of course, please take a moment. Start 2021 off right and give a rating and review to this podcast. Um, let's keep building the, uh, the momentum into this year. And thank you again for listening. 
please stay safe. Please stay sane if you can. I know these are it's it's increasingly difficult. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.